Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, the ninth chapter of Mark, these words, And after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. The Camelot Complex. There are a lot of Christians that have what could be called the Camelot Complex in our day. What is it? It's seeing the world through the rose-colored glasses of those who preach a Christless and crossless gospel of prosperity, a gospel of wealth and health and happiness where Jesus is little more than a Sir Lancelot at the side that we need to help us establish our own little kingdom or a Merlin, the wizard who's in the background helping to do all sorts of things for us in order to enable us to establish our own little Camelot. A self-help gospel whereby you can, quote, become a better you by realizing the full potential of the, quote, divine DNA that's in you and then utilizing that divine DNA that's in you to be everything that God destined you to be. These are quotes from some of those who would hold to this Camelot sort of Christianity. The prosperity doctrine that says, quote, if you not only believe for something, but declare that it's already yours, the desired blessing will become true, unquote. So you see, it's saying that through your positive attitude, through what you can do and what you can accomplish, through becoming a better you, you can, quote, have a little heaven on earth right where you are. You can accomplish your dreams even before you go to heaven. And how can you do that? By tapping into God's power that's inside of you. It's all up to you. Unquote. The Camelot Complex. Looking at the world through the rose-colored glasses of a gospel of health and wealth and happiness and order, I suppose, in good part, to isolate and to insulate ourselves from the reality of the world that's out there that we of ourselves cannot cope with. The real ugliness of the real sin that mars real life and still scars our real world. Life in that spiritual Camelot of our own making, that legendary land of King Arthur, that magical land of Camelot where everything is perfect and everything is nice. But my friends, an earthly Camelot does not exist. Despite what some of these might say, an earthly Camelot does not exist. It does not exist here. It does not exist anywhere. It's not now. It's not yet. It's not here outside of our own Disneylands and imaginations. God calls us as his people in our age to live in and to work in and to love in a very imperfect world. A world where sin has seriously soiled and stained and broken everything 
that otherwise would be beautiful about God's created order, a world where sin reigns over the hearts and the minds of all too many men and women and children, a world where sin strains our relationships with each other and brings so much physical pain and suffering into our lives and into the lives of the people we love and even into the lives of people we don't know. That's reality. That's the world we live in, and no imaginary Camelot of any kind is going to change that. Indeed, if the factual and the historical reality of what happened and what we're celebrating today in Transfiguration If what happened there to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration didn't isolate and insulate them from the stains and the strains and the pains of life in the sinful world, no notion of some legendary Camelot is going to do that for us either. Consider their experience in the mountaintop today, that day of Transfiguration before we enter into the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. Consider the fact that Peter, James, and John were up there with I wide awe at the glorious sight and that glimpse of heaven's glory that they had, which so few men in human history had ever had, that glimpse of heaven's glory, maybe Moses, Moses indeed, the prophet of prophets, whose scripture describes saying, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses perhaps had been one who would come the closest to beholding God in his glory, and then not even the fullness of his glory, certainly not. But he had seen the close-up of God. And here Moses is face to face with the Lord again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, enveloped in this inexpressible glory. And Elijah, as the picture on your bulletin describes, is standing there with them. Elijah, whom we heard about in today's Old Testament lesson, who experiences the ride of all rides and is carried from earth to heaven in a chariot of angelic fire ascending in a whirl of wind into celestial realms. And now there on that mountaintop, the sight of two of heaven's greatest mortals with heaven's immortal king in conference with him. It's all so exciting. So glorious to behold, as Peter himself would write years later in his own scriptural epistle, he said, we were eyewitnesses of that majesty. We were with him on that holy mountain. A memorable experience that was with him indeed for the rest of his life and even into eternity. There he was, Christ in his majestic glory, transfiguring every human cell that had been born of the very human Virgin Mary. And there he was, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. There he was, the uncreated light, enveloped in the splendor of heaven's glory, drawing heaven's saints from above and earth's sinners from below to himself on that mountaintop of transfiguration. Some of us might get a small sense of all of that when we listen to the lyrics of Bach's phenomenal Yesu joy of man's desiring, especially 
these words where it says, Yesu joy of man's desiring, holy wisdom, love most bright, drawn by thee our souls aspiring soar to uncreated light. If the beauty of Bach so stirs us and moves us, can't you well imagine how the magnificence of that mountaintop miracle so stirred the disciples that they momentarily forgot all about that real world that was down below, that world from whence they had come, that they wanted to hang on to that moment, they wanted to hang around that vision of reality that there they had on the mountaintop. They wanted to contain that moment. Master, it's so good to be here, Peter said. Let's put up three shelters, three tabernacles where we might be for a long period of time and reside with you. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Those disciples weren't the first to desire that kind of premature glory. They certainly won't be the last that want that good measure of heaven's glory here upon earth prematurely. There's a good bit indeed of that Camelot complex in all of us, and there are certainly those, as I've said in our day, who would play on it. Those who propose a conflict-free Christianity, a compromising Camelot Christianity to a confessing Christianity that boldly professes the truth and bravely confronts what is false and what is evil in our world, there are those who prefer a comfortable Christianity that seldom interferes with the routine of a courageous Christianity that calls for consistency, that permeates then our home life and our work life and our social life, our daily life. There are most certainly those yet today who envision a Camelot Christianity of sustained emotional highs all the time, crowned constantly with entertainment-induced excitement as better than a cross-centered and a cross-bearing Christianity that is often somber and soft and subdued and serious, but always sustained, always sustained, not by human emotions, but by the word of God, the word of the cross, and the sacramental fruits of the cross wherein he gives his life to his sons and to his daughters who live here in this dying world. Yes, that Camelot, like Christianity, is ever-present in our world. And you know when it's most evident in the church's year? Every Christmas when people rally with the shepherds to hear the glory songs, and the glorious songs of the angels of the fields of Bethlehem, and joyfully sing and celebrate the glories of that season, and then again in Easter, when churches fill again to joyfully celebrate the triumphant and gloriously risen Christ. Times of glory and their hymns of glory and songs of glory tends to draw people, whether it's to the glorious manger, to the glorious empty tomb, and we do indeed rightly enjoy those moments of glory. We need those mountaintop times and glimpses of glory, even as the disciples enjoy and needed those moments of glory, the Mount of Transfiguration, before going down again into the realities of sin, into the realities here of the world. But what about the cross? There's the center in the heart of Christianity. What about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Our salvation was not one in a manger. 
Our salvation was not even won in the emptiness of the tomb. Our salvation was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross. And that's why it's Christ and Christ crucified, which is forever the beating heart of the Christian church. Christ crucified, from whose side St. John tells us water and blood flows, carrying the forgiveness of sins for sinners. Sinners baptismally washed in the waters of fonts like that. Sinners sacramentally fed at altars like this. Sinners who, by God's grace, glory neither in a crossless Christ or in a Christless cross, but are determined to say with St. Paul, far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's why in this important season of Lent, which begins this Wednesday and is nestled so neatly and rightly between Christmas and Easter, we Christians are to be found walking step by step by step with our Savior Jesus Christ, silently viewing the reality of his passion during the sacred and the somber season of Lent, humbly drawn to his cross. How was it that the hymnist put it? Drawn to the cross, which thou hast blessed with healing gifts for souls distressed to find in thee my life, my rest, Christ, crucified I come. Now for a time, the sight and the sounds and the songs of the gloriously transfigured Christ give way to the sights and to the sounds of the twisted Christ upon the cross. Now for a time, the sight of the newly born Christ lying in the manger must give way to the dead Christ lying lifeless in the tomb. Even the risen Christ for a time, to the ridiculed Christ, the monarch Christ, to the mocked Christ. Why? Because it's in these very images of the suffering Savior of the world that we would cherish so dearly and have imprinted so clearly and inscribed so deeply within our hearts what is indeed the beating heart of our faith. On my heart, Lord, we sing, imprint your image, blessed Jesus, King of grace, that life's riches and its glories never may your work erase. Let the clear inscription be, Jesus crucified for me. That's my life, my hope's foundation. That is my glory and my salvation. And so it is today that we, like the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration, must often leave these mountaintop experiences of life where things are bright and beautiful for a time and make our way down to the valley where troubled marriages and drifting sons and daughters or ailing health or job dissatisfaction or job loss or bouts of loneliness or depression or doubts about who we are and where we're going in life or even the simple routine of ordinary daily life quickly overshadows and clouds out whatever glimpse of momentary glory that we might enjoy. From the summit to the plain, 
And then from the plain to the darkest ravines of the deepest valleys we go, even as did Peter and James and John. But note well, dear friends, they did not go back down that mountain alone. The text tells us that Jesus went with them. He who had come from heaven above to earth below was not about to linger long on earth's heights. No, he had yet to go to earth's depths and from there deeper still to hell's dungeon and to its conquered dragon. He had there to go. And so Jesus went down with them down the mountain. And so our text says that soon after the cloud of God in his glory had appeared and enveloped them, then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And then suddenly, it says that when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. No one except Jesus. Jesus who didn't leave when Moses and Elijah left. Jesus, who would not, even for himself, entertain any notion of a glory apart from that of the cross. Someone has so beautifully said, not in a cloud of transfiguration glory or in a chariot of fire was Jesus to accomplish his work, but with his arms stretched out upon a cross. And not between Moses and Elijah, but between two thieves, who were crucified with him on either side. Ours, you see, was most certainly not some sort of cross-free Christ, some Camelot Christ. Ours was the cross-bearing Christ. Ours, the sin-bearing Christ, preparing us all for heaven's eternal glory. And until he calls us then from this world and carries us to that glory, as he has already so many of our family members and our friends, it remains ours to expect that we will have in this life and in this world our share of burdens and our share of life's crosses to bear as well. An old man was once approached by his grandson who had been going through very difficult and very trying times in his life and the young man was terribly depressed by all that he had to go through and the seeming unfairness of it all. He was embittered indeed against God because he was going through so many problems in his life and he had so many unanswered questions and seemed so befuddled with what was before him. Grandpa, he said, it's just not fair. I look around at others, I look at my friends who have rejected Christ and do everything that they possibly could to offend him and what they say and what they do, and yet they seem so happy and they seem so often to be so carefree. And here I am, a Christian with problems and troubles galore. Just, Grandpa, it doesn't seem fair. And the old man smiled and he leaned forward in his chair and he placed his hand upon his grandson's hand. And he said to him, Son, I know what you mean. I've been where you are, I remember the feeling well. In fact, it still reoccurs once in a while, but whenever it does, I remember something I was told when I was much younger. There are two crosses in every Christian's life. The first, and by far the most important, is the cross which Christ carried for us, the cross upon which he died for us, the cross upon which he earned for us our eternal salvation. 
The second is the cross that he would have us carry. The cross upon which rests whatever burden he would have us bear, lest we become so caught up and so content with earth's fleeting glory that we think more of sustaining it than waiting in faith for heaven's far greater glory. Expect not them to be crossless Camelot Christians. And above all else, thank God that ours was not and is not a crossless Camelot Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.